Today we begin a series titled Idols and Aliens. And some of you are wondering what that's all about. Well, today uh, I want to open up with an illustration I think captures this idea. In 1996, uh, the Green Bay Packers were doing quite well. Brett Favre was an MVP type, having an MVP type of season. They played at Lambeau Field for a home game one day, and a fan had a sign that was trying to point them to the Super Bowl that year, which they ended up going and winning. But this is what the sign said. Our Favre who art in Lambeau, how would be thy arm? The bowl will come, it will be won, in New Orleans as it is in Lambeau. Give us this Sunday our weekly win, and give us many touchdown passes, but do not let others pass against us. Lead us not into frustration, but deliver us to Bourbon Street. For thine is the MVP, the best of the NFL, and the glory of the cheeseheads, now and forever. Go get them. The person who I got this illustration from writes this afterwards. Apparently, some fans recognize their team support for what it really is. Worship. It's idolatry when it gets that far. Our desire in this series is to speak of these things, these realities of idolatry in our culture. We don't live in India where there are a pantheon of gods on pillars, on altars, on our streets. But we live in a culture where gods are just as prominent, though not as recognizable. They are far more subtle in our culture. But with that subtlety comes great severity. Because what it does is produce an ignorance in us of the reality of idolatry. Subtleness brings severity. Because we're ignorant of that reality. Every day we're bombarded with idolatry. We're bombarded by the allure of idols. We are drawn by idols and oftentimes are not even aware of it. And what we want to do in these next four weeks is unpack what it means to be drawn by idols, to see idols for what they are, to resist idols. And there's a a close connection then with aliens, believe it or not. You see, as we have become people who embrace a heart of worship of the true God of the Bible as we discussed last week, as we trust Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins, and the giver of life. As we repent and have Him lead us in a way of obedience, we transition our identity from one to another. Our identity is no longer in self, in sin, or in Satan, but we are now children of God. But not only does our identity transfer, but so does our citizenship. We no longer are citizens of earth, but citizens of heaven. And therefore we're here on earth as exiles, or better yet, aliens. And as people of God who worship the true God of the Bible, our identity on earth is to be an alien. We're out of this world, yet we live in it. And that's what we want to unpack over the next four Sundays. For many of us, as we think of idols, what comes to our mind is American Idol, perhaps. We think of Simon Cowell, Ryan Seacrest. For some of us, we think of statues, gold statues like this bull here. We think of our favorite athlete. We idolize that person. 
However, as I said, idolatry is, is, it could be that, but it's something that's very subtle oftentimes, which makes it so dangerous. The Webster's Dictionary defines an idol as an object of passionate devotion. It defines an idolater as a person that admires or loves intensely and often blindly an object not usually a subject of worship. It says that an idolater is someone who loves something, often we do it blindly. It's so subtle we don't even recognize it. Mark Driscoll defines idolatry as this, or idols as this. He says, idols are good things that turn into God things, which makes them a bad thing. And for today, as we open up Exodus 32, the definition I want to work with along those very lines is, idolatry is the fashioning of anything to the place that only God should have in our hearts. Idolatry is the fashioning of anything, anything, to the place that only God should have in our hearts. And once we see idolatry as this, we begin to recognize that Yes, indeed, we're not like India where we see gods erected on altars and pillars, but we can see them more clearly in our day-to-day lives and even perhaps in our hearts. John Calvin once said that the heart is an idol factory. Our hearts are idol factories. We build idols in our hearts. We may not bow down physically, but we bow our hearts so often. My prayer is that we could see idols for what they are, recognize how they intoxicatingly allure us in, how they draw us, and that we could recognize that and be people of true worship to the real and only God of the Bible. So we're going to turn to Exodus 32 to do that. Would you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32? It's the golden calf story. Many of us might be quite familiar with this story. We think of uh, the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston. You might remember the scene where Moses or Charlton Heston comes down from the mountaintop and there he sees the people dancing wildly, drinking, partying, doing immoral things. And that's the description we get of their form of idolatry. But as we see them, I think we'll see us close to them as uh, oftentimes we don't want to admit. We are more like them than we would like to admit. But before I go on to looking at this passage, would you bow with me in prayer as we commit this text to the Lord? Oh God, I pray. God, I pray that you would speak through us, to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, help us See, God, the idols in the world around us. Help us see, God, how we've been deceived into subtle idolatry. And as the song was just saying, God, help us cast down these idols, Lord, and be people of worship to you. God, I pray you put away distractions and that you and your word might come centered, Lord. Will we hear and obey, God, as you speak to us? Spirit of God, I pray you would empower me, that you might speak through me, God. And Lord, will we leave today 
with hearts undivided in our worship to you. Help us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at Exodus chapter 32. We'll go in verses 1 through 6 to begin. <clears throat> this is what the Word of God says if you follow with me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. I want to stop there. They saw Moses was taking long. Exodus 28 tells us, 24 tells us that it had actually been 40 days. Moses had been up on that mountain talking with God for 40 days and they hadn't seen him since he first went up there. They grew impatient. I start thinking, would I have grown impatient? 40 days is a long time. I could see myself giving two weeks. Forty days they waited, but they grew impatient. So they went to Aaron with their problem. Aaron, Moses is taking long. If you remember, Aaron is Moses' brother. So your brother's taking long. We don't know what happened to him. He brought us out of Egypt and he's gone. So let's do something about this. They said, We want a God who's going to go before us, we want something tangible. We want something we could see. Something that's more real to us. So let's, let's make a God. So verse 2, Aaron said to them, Well, take off the rings. Take off the gold. Let's put something together and see what we can do. Look at verse 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. In verse 4, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Your Bible probably has that in all caps. Most of your Bibles do. That means that this is the name of Yahweh. Aaron is calling this calf Yahweh, the God of Israel. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It says that Aaron in verse 4 fashioned this calf with a graving tool. He fashioned it. This word fashion is very similar to the word we have in Genesis 2 when we're told that God formed man. And if you think of this parallel here, that in the book of Exodus, the writer is drawing our attention to the creative work of God in Genesis. Think about this. When God created man, how did he do it? He spoke it. He said, let us make man in our likeness and our image. God made man in his own image. And here we have Man making God in the image of an animal. What great treachery we have here. What great offense there is. The God of the universe is being formed 
to be like an animal. When God made us, He made us in His image. When we made Him, we made Him to be an animal. It goes on that Aaron builds an altar for God, for this God. They want to sacrifice to it. So he says, tomorrow we're going to do it. He likens this bull, this calf, to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the Lord of the universe. (laughs) He's trying to have it both ways. Serve one God and then serve the other. And perhaps even in his mind, he's meshing the two together, a sort of syncretism. But you can't have it both ways. Jesus says you can only have one master. You will either serve the one and hate the other, be devoted to one, or despise the other. You can only have one God. But they wanted several. Aaron says, we're going to have a feast. So the people, it says, they rose up early the next morning. They got up early. They built their day around this celebration to this golden idol. They made sure they can get up early in the morning and it says that they ate and they drank and it rose up to play. Now the word play can have all different types of connotation. It doesn't have to be negative. But if you think, it says that they ate and drank. Later on in the chapter we're told that they were dancing. We're also told that they were singing. And we're also told that the neighboring nations saw them and were ridiculing them. This wasn't a positive eating and drinking and playing. They weren't drinking Gatorade. They were likely getting drunk. They weren't playing hopscotch, bingo, or double dutch. They were partaking in the lust of their flesh, in a drunken orgy, in worship of Yahweh, the golden calf. The story is a striking one because we see how offensive it is. These are the people that God did a miraculous work to bring them out of Egypt with plagues upon plagues on the Egyptians until Pharaoh finally said, let them go. And then when they left, God guided them with a fire by night and a cloud by day. And yet here they are forsaking him to the likeness of a golden calf. But as I mentioned before we get too judgmental on these people, we think, I mean, come on, really? A golden calf? How am I going to say that this is my God? Before we get too judgmental, look at what it took for them to get to this place of idolatry. These people became idolatrous when they, all, when they needed another sign of confirmation from God. You see, as I said, God did a miraculous work to deliver them, a miraculous work to guide them, He parted the Red Sea to protect them. He brought manna from heaven to feed them. And when it came down to it, they wanted a God to go before them. But what had had he been doing the whole time? But the very thing that they pretended he wasn't. Guiding them. Going before them. And idolatry in our day often happens in the same way. When no matter what God has done to show himself to us, We need another sign of confirmation to really truly believe in Him. And idolatry is near when our hearts are drifting towards that mentality. When we always need God to show Himself in another way for us to believe. And if He doesn't, we're not going to believe. 
when we see ourselves going that way, we need to cast down that idolatrous movement in our life. We also see another way that they felt his idolatry. I see that their faith was more in a man than it was in God. You see, their faith was established upon Moses. So when Moses was out of the picture, God became out of the picture. He was gone for 40 days, and in essence, to them, God was gone for 40 days. They couldn't get beyond him to worship God himself. And we run in great danger when our faith is placed in man. Whether for good intentions initially or bad intentions. When we look at somebody and say, my faith is in that person and I'm going to follow even their Christian life. It's good to have mentors and follow people. But when they are the place of our faith, if they move away or if they fall astray, are we to move away and fall astray too? See, idolatry is near when our faith in God is dependent on our faith in a person. I was thinking about this and I found great encouragement when I thought, when I thought about Good News Bible Church. You know, Pastor Wayne ministered here for 30 years. And when God moved him on in September, people did not leave this church. And I believe that's a testimony to what he, as a pastor, led us to, to believe, is that this is not his church or anybody's church but Christ's church. So when God would lead, move a leader on, the church doesn't move on, but it stays because Christ is the head. And I found great encouragement when I thought about that. And I know that's a testimony to the ministry of that man that we praise God for. And we need to have that mindset always that God is the focus of our faith and not a person. Because people will let us down. We will let people down. We can fall prey to idolatry not only when we need a sign of confirmation, not only when we serve uh, our faith is more in man than in God, but also when we want God on our own terms. They had this mindset where they gave God a chance, but he was all of a sudden absent from them. They wanted God to be physically present before them, even though he was present in a dozen different ways before them. And they thought, well, God, if we can't see you, you must not be real, even though he's proven himself to them throughout. And it's easy when our hearts are driven to idolatry to think that we want God on our terms. And we start fashioning God in the image that we want him to be to satisfy our own wants and desires. We might have the desire to be married. It's a God-given desire. It's a good thing. But when we pursue that desire outside of God's will, when we say, God, you're delaying in this, I'm going to pursue sexual fulfillment in some other way outside of marriage, we've erected the idol of self. And that idol is never satisfied. Idolatry is near. We want God on our own terms, as we've seen from these people here. We also see that they have this live for today mentality. We have this idea that's so prevalent in our culture. This idol of seize the day. Because tomorrow we don't know what's going to happen. And they 
took part in drunken revelry. They ate, they drank, they rose up, they played, and they dishonored God. I'm struck by how they really tried to have it both ways. In our culture, people don't rise up early usually to pursue their immoral, lustful, sexual desires. But in our culture is, they stay up late. And these are things that we need to be aware of. These notions, these draws to idolatry. None of these things can be inherently evil, but they are, like as Driscoll said, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it then becomes a bad thing. And we see this in the lives of these Israelites. We're not that far off from them. See, when we erect anything in our hearts to the place where only God ought to be, we find ourselves to be guilty of idolatry. It becomes our fulfillment, our joy, our satisfaction above and beyond God. For us, that temptation is very real with our own children. Last night, Keziah had a nightmare. She came out of her bed, and I was really sad for her because she really, it was like a real nightmare. So I held her, and I had that really fatherly, like, protective feel. I just told her, I said, Keziah, Mommy and Papi are right out here. You don't have to worry. Jesus will protect you in your dreams. You don't have to worry. You can sleep in peace. And that's how I feel with my children. I think of Lucas and Keziah, and many of you who are parents know what it means to feel like you want to protect your child at any cost. You want the best for your child. You want to see them grow up and thrive to follow, honor, and fear God. But God forbid that we ever make our children idols. They are not ours ultimately, but God's. God may move them on someday. He may call them to move away. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. We cannot hold on. We need to be responsible, God-honoring, but not idolatrous in the raising of our children. Our jobs can be an idol. Our music can be an escapism where we hide to our music. We pop in the iPod and we listen rather than calling out to God in the midst of our sorrow. Food can be an idol where we eat away our sorrows and don't turn to God. Sex can be an idol where we want fulfillment outside of the confines that God has established in the marriage relationship. See, idolatry in our culture is very subtle, but it's just as severe. Mark Driscoll tells a story of when he went to India. He was in a city there, and he says all around him were idols. And he was there working with a church that was planting another church there in the community. And he talked to the pastor's wife, and he said, you know, I'm here in India. Do you ever think about coming to the United States? And she says, oh, I have gone there, but I'm never going back. And it's kind of taken and said, well, what's, you know, what's preventing you? She said she couldn't stomach the idolatry. And he cracked the joke. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm here surrounded by idols, and there's a chicken here who's ready to get his head chopped off for the chicken god. And this lady says she can't stomach the idolatry in America. So he tells her, well, what type of idols do you see in America? And she told him this. She says, your god is your stomach in America. And you have restaurants everywhere to prove it. Your God is your sports team and you build multi-million dollar stadiums to house them. Your God is the television 
and all the chairs in your home are lined up so your family can gather around the altar and worship that God. Ouch. But again, we need to see idolatry not simply as a golden calf, but as a matter of our heart. See, the people of Israel fell prey to idolatry long before the calf was built. It was in their hearts. And we need to be very aware and cognizant of the intoxicating draw of idols in our culture. So how do we know we've made blank an idol in our life? What do you love the most? Who do you love the most? What is the greatest source of joy in your life? Where do your treasures lie? When you long to be with something, do you long to be with it more than you long to be with God? We fall prey to idolatry when we turn to something to give fulfillment instead of turning to God. When this thing consumes our thoughts, our emotions, our money, our time, ourselves, we are prone and vulnerable to idolatry. So when we look at these people, we can't be so quick to judge and say, what fools? Because just as God has shown himself mighty in our lives, he showed himself mighty in their lives. And just as they turn to idols, we are so tempted and intoxicated often by the draw of idols. So why is idolatry so offensive to God? Look at verse 7. I'm going to read there. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people. He calls them your people. These are your people now. But you think, they just told them, they said, Israel, these are your gods. And God's saying, well, these are your gods. Then Moses, these are your people. He says, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Eighty-five times, at least in the Bible, God refers to them as my people. And about twenty-five times, he calls them this people. And when he calls them this people, he's not happy with them. You know, I've said this before, but it's like a parent who says, to, it's like a husband tells his wife, that son of yours is really driving me crazy. You know, God's kind of saying, this people have brought offense to me. He calls them a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may, take, I may make a great nation of you. It's so severe that God is ready to wipe them out on the spot. And he tells Moses, I'm going to start new with you. They will no longer be called sons of Israel. They will not say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our fathers, but they'll say Moses. Because I'm going to wipe them out and start with you right now. Their idolatry was so severe. Why? When he says that they corrected themselves and quickly turned away from the commandments that he had given them. Because at the heart, idolatry is rebellion. 
against God. So when we let idols, these little ones, these innocent ones, these subtle ones, take form in our lives, there is rebellion in our hearts. And God is no longer the all-satisfying joy and pleasure and delight in our lives. And to, to God, that is offensive. They worshipped the catch. Idolatry steals worship from God. I mean, just think about that. How absurd it is. Isaiah talks about that. He, he mocks the, the idol worshippers. He said, with one tree, you cut it down. You take some of the wood, you make an idol. Some of the wood you use for firewood and warm your houses. And you find a right to worship the idol, but you don't worship your fireplace. And he mocks them. And just think how offensive that is to God. These man-made things are taking the worship that he deserves. Thirdly, they call this thing God. But he tells us, I am God and there is no other. But this calf takes the name of God. They call it Yahweh. Fourthly, and I find this to be quite significant, significant they say in verse 8, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. For them, their idolatry gave credit to the calf for the deliverance that God had brought. So they're going to live their life now for the calf. That's offensive to God. Just think about our own lives. We celebrated Resurrection Sunday last week. The victory that God has brought us, the redemption, the deliverance from sin. He purchased by his, the blood of His Son on a cross who bore our sin. He died, was laid in the tomb for three days and then raised to life, victorious over death. He is our deliverer. And yet, if we attribute that to anything but God, how offensive that is. And that's what they did. When it comes down to it, idolatry opposes the essence of the gospel. It's an attack on the gospel. Christ died to purchase sinners. Idols don't do that for us. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, nobody can come to the Father but by me. Idol worship separates people from the loving God. The gospel calls for obedience to God, not rebellion. So idolatry is offensive. But why doesn't God wipe them out? He's about to do it, it seems like. He says, Moses, leave me alone. I'm going to do this. But even in God's statement, he's calling Moses to intercede. And that's what Moses does. Verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? He acknowledges right away, God, that is a lie what they're celebrating. God, we acknowledge you are the one who delivered us. Moses had a right heart of worship. So he acknowledges that. He confesses it. And when we find ourselves straying, that's a place to start. God, I know it's you who's given me life. Not these things that are luring me in. 
God, I know my heart draws towards sin. But God, it's you who's given me victory. And you seek Him instead. You declare Him. You celebrate Him. Moses goes on, verse 12, Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains to consume them from the face of the earth? He said, why should the nations mock you, God? Your fame is on the line here. Your reputation, that concerns me. That's a man who has his priorities straight. His desire is that God would be celebrated. And then he says, verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars in heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offsprings, that they shall inherit forever. He says, God, you are a promise keeper. I know that. I know that. So please, would your anger be at ease? And God is a just God, and every sin deserves justice. It deserves punishment. But God here is displaying His mercy. Because this is what verse 14 says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of, bringing on His people. We see how severe idolatry is. But we see how merciful God is as well. When we find idolatry in our own lives, as we search ourselves, we've got to deal with it accordingly. We have to cast down the idols. Moses came down from the mountain, as you know the story says, with the two tablets. He gets to the foot of the mountain and he is shocked by the evil of the people. He throws down the tablets so as to say, the covenant that was about to be established is already broken. He takes the golden calf. He melts it down. He turns it into dust, pours it into water, and he says, drink the water, he tells the people. Drink the water to your shame. Look at your God. He made them do that. Idolatry is to be eradicated from our lives with great zeal. There's this thing on YouTube that's becoming really popular. And it's uh, a guy who makes uh, blenders has this two or three minute segment online that says, Will it blend? And basically, he just takes these different segments to see what things actually blend in his blender. And one recent thing that he blended had two million hits on YouTube. It was an iPad. The recent iPad that came out through uh, Apple, he took it, he broke it in half, put it in his blender, and blended it. And it took some time, but sure enough, this thing blended. He's blended iPods, he's blended all sorts of things. And this is just testing the quality of his blender. And all these people are really mad. It was on CNN.com. They're just mad. You know, the environmentalists are thinking, this is a horrible thing. All these things are going to waste. And then other techie people are like, this is a great jewel you're, you're destroying. And people are really bothered by it. But I thought, you know, there's a parallel here. Because whatever the idols that we find ourselves drawn to, we've got to deal with it just as severely. Will it blend? We've got to make it. We need to cast down the idols that our worship might be centered on God and not make excuses for it. As you see down in verse 25, um, I'm sorry, verse 21, Moses confronts the people, or Aaron, he says, what did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? I mean, Moses is amazed, like, what were you thinking, Aaron? In verse 22, Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. 
their hearts are set on evil. These people, you know, that's how Aaron's mentality is. They're horrible. He says, you know what, Moses, you've dealt with them. Shifting the blame. He says, verse 23, For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, Moses, and you know, you did take a while, by the way. This Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, uh, So I said to them, Let any who have gold take of it. He's kind of being very passive. You know, I had a little role, but it was really minor. And then he goes on to say, Take off the gold. So they gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I threw the gold in, and voila, look at this. Not owning up to the sin, the idolatry in his own heart. The story continues that Moses says, Who is on the Lord's side? Stand up and come next to me. And God would have them execute justice on those who wanted the idols instead. 3,000 people would be put to death by the sword that day. And then a plague would be put on the people because of the offense of idolatry. God's call is that we would deal with the idolatry that tries to intoxicate us. We'd blend it. Cast it down. Get rid of it. That we wouldn't try to excuse it like Aaron did. Blame shift. Moses, it did take you a while. All I did was collect the gold. I just threw it in. Out came this idol. But then we'd say, God, I see these tendencies in my heart and I don't want them. Forgive me, God. I'm on your side, God. I'm on the Lord's side. I said that in our culture, idols are subtle. And because of their subtlety, there's great severity. Because there's ignorance in our lives of the realities of idolatry. And we have to be people who see them for what they are and say, God, I want my worship to be of you. We don't have a pantheon of gods set up on pillars in our culture. But we see them every day. And they may even be in our homes. Would you ask the Lord today, God, show me how I've erected idols in my life. Make me aware of how I'm drawn in. And may I be a man or a woman who is undivided in my worship of you, God. I'm on your side. I want to be as Moses was, concerned for your glory, give you the credit for what you've done, and give you all the honor and praise that you deserve. Would that be your heart's cry today? Would you be one undivided in your worship to God? Would you bow with me in prayer?